Hello, friends. This is Torin, and this is the inaugural, the very first episode of Torin's Guide to Everything. I don't know if there will be a second episode. We'll see. But let's get this one started, shall we? Let me introduce myself. My name is Torin Atkinson. You may know me as a former co-host and creator of the podcast Caustic Soda. You may know me as the lead singer and founder of The Darkest of the Hillside Thickets. You may know me as an illustrator or storyboard artist. You may know me from writing 2001 tabletop role-playing game Spaceship Zero with my uh, friend Warren Banks. You may know me as a voice actor or and screen actor. I was in Stargate Atlantis, and I played Doctor Strange on a recent episode of a Marvel superhero adventures. But enough about me. Let's talk about Bubble Tea. Bubble Tea, also known as Pearl Milk Tea, Bubble Milk Tea, or Boba, comes from Taiwan, invented in Tainan and Taichung in the 1980s. The original inventor of Bubble Tea? Unknown. It became known as bubble tea, not because of the pearls, but because of the thick layer of foam that forms on top of the drink after it is shaken. I know, right? Usually, it will contain a tea of some kind, a milk of some kind, and sometimes sugar. Toppings, known as pearls, are tapioca balls, usually. You can get popping boba. You can get fruit jelly. You can get grass jelly. You can get puddings. You can get... Uh, what do you call it, Uh, the red beans and a whole bunch of other stuff. It's weird that they call them toppings even though they really go on the bottom. They should be called bottomings, so let's get that out of the way. Flavors. Tea, typically. Black tea. Green tea. But, ho, 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 you can also get fruit bubble teas. Uh, You know, you get your mango. You get your coconut. You could get uh, honeydew. You can get the taro root which is an actual, it's like, it's kind of like, hmm, now I got to talk to you about taro. Let's do it. This is a tropical plant grown primarily for its edible, what does that say, corms? It's a tuber. It's a tropical tuber plant. You might find it in Africa, Oceanic and South Asian cultures. It's similar to yams. So it's kind of like an Asian potato, I guess you might say. And when you order it in a bubble tea, you can get fresh taro or you can get the powdered taro, which I prefer typically because it's like I say, it's kind of an Asian potato. So if you get fresh, uh, if you get fresh taro, you're in for kind of like having potato water. But it's not terrible. It's okay. I just prefer the fake, quote unquote, sugary purple taro milk tea. Often I get a slush. That's a personal preference. I would usually go for a slush. Oh, what does what does slush mean? Well, it's basically like a frap, or uh, you know, you get your uh, your frappuccino at the Starbucks or whatever. So it's blended. It's a blended drink. It will often come in a clear plastic cup that uses a machine to seal a plastic lid on top, just like cellophane, and it heat seals it on there. I guess. So you can shake your tea at any time, turn it upside down, and then you will puncture it. You will puncture the top lid with uh, an oversized straw if you're getting the pearls inside, the tapioca pearls. Now, what are tapioca pearls made of? Well, they're made out of tapioca. But where does tapioca come from? Tapioca is a starch extracted from the roots of the cassava plant native to Brazil. 
Yes, Brazil, South America. So you're going to get your carbs in your tapioca pearls. Bubble tea, truly an international drink. Now, you want to have a bubble tea, but you've never had one before, and you're like, which one should I get? Well, if you like tea, just grab a black tea bubble tea or a green tea bubble tea. Uh, you can ask them to give to make it half sweet. If you're a little concerned about the sweetness, you can get it as a slushy blended drink, or you can just get it as a regular tea with a milk tea. If you want, if you if you know that there's a fruit that you like, like strawberry, you like strawberry, you like mango, you could like coconut. Try one of those. Or if there's anything else that stands out in the menu to you, you're feeling daring, you want to try something new, you've never had taro, give it a shot. If you end up not liking the tapioca pearls, just don't just don't order them. Just don't don't drink it. Now let's talk about I'm a fan of minimizing waste. So let's talk about some options for reducing single-use plastic. This won't be very long. Bear with me. If you're buying bubble tea on the fly, you just happen to be out, you don't have your any reusable container with you, you don't have your coffee mug with you, you can just get the way it comes in, a, in your clear plastic cup with the straw. If you're getting the kind of bubble tea that has the giant pearls in it, then a regular your regular reusable straw or paper straw um, is not going to work because you're not going to be able to get the pearls through that straw yet, maybe in the future. But a lot of these bubble tea places will also sell paper cups for hot drinks. So if you're, and if you're getting it, oh yeah, I should have mentioned, you can get hot or cold bubble tea. Important point. Anyway, even if you're getting a cold drink, you can just say, hey, don't put it in that plastic cup. Put it in your paper cup. So at least I'm not throwing plastic in the garbage. But some places you can absolutely buy. If you're the kind of person who is like, I only get bubble tea during my lunch break at work on Fridays or something like that. Or there's a bubble tea place two blocks from my house. So I know I'm going to go get bubble tea. I'm going to bring my own container. And, for example, if you go to bumblercup.com or you just Google reusable bubble tea cup, you can find some places. And if you're in Vancouver, there's a place in Olympic Village called the Bubble Tea Shop, and they will sell and uh, like a, it's like a big old jar with a, it's a hard plastic top and it has the hole in it and they give you a metal straw and they give you a little pipe cleaner type cleaning device to clean out your straw and they will sell that to you. And I think it's for like 12 bucks and that includes your bubble tea. And if you bring back your container to your, your home container to get bubble tea, they'll give you like, I don't know, a quarter off. It's not much, but it's something. And you're not throwing plastic out every single time. So that's good. I think that's all I have to say about bubble tea at this time. If you live in Vancouver like me, there is a shitload of bubble tea places to choose from. There's not, there's only one good place on Commercial Drive right now. And I'm going to give them a shout-out because they just opened up within this past year, and it's called Dive-In Desserts. We are not sponsored by Dive-In Desserts, but I've been there three times. They don't have a huge menu of bubble tea, but they have some other cool like shaved ice uh, desserts and stuff like that. Do you have any questions about bubble tea? What is your favorite bubble tea flavor? Talk to me, people. Let's talk about bubble tea. What did I miss? What did I forget? I know you said, you said I shouldn't want to resist, but I found out that I couldn't. That was the moment you found out that I'm damaged goods. 
told me why you had to stress it. But when you left, I just had to go and mess it. And I was surprised when you came back to find it and cried. I took your cabbage, I threw it in the garbage now. I took your cabbage, I threw it in the garbage now. I took your cabbage, I threw it in the garbage now. I took your cabbage, I threw it in the garbage now. Science Direct, the Journal of Archaeological Science reports, October 2019, Volume 27. The following article. Experimental replication shows knives manufactured from frozen human feces do not work. Authors being Metin I. Eren, Michelle R. Beber, James D. Norris, Alyssa Perone, Ashley Rutkowski, Michael Wilson, Mary Ann Reganti. Abstract. The ethnographic account of an Inuit man manufacturing a knife from his own frozen feces to butcher and disarticulate a dog has permeated both the academic literature and popular culture. To evaluate the validity of this claim, we tested the basis of that account via experimental archaeology. Our experiments assessed the functionality of knives made from human feces in controlled conditions that provided optimal conditions for success. However, they were not functional. While much research has shown foragers to be technologically resourceful, innovative, and savvy, we suggest that this ethnographic account should no longer be used to support that narrative. Ethnographic. Relating to the scientific description of peoples and cultures with their customs, habits, and mutual differences. Now you know the definition of ethnographic. One, introduction. In his book, Shadows in the Sun, Davis, 1998, recounts what is now arguably one of the most popular ethnographic accounts of all time. There is a well-known account of an old Inuit man who refused to move into a settlement. Over the objections of his family, he made plans to stay on the ice. To stop him, they took away all of his tools. So, in the middle of a winter gale, he stepped out of their igloo, defecated, and honed the feces into a frozen blade, which he sharpened with a spray of saliva. With the knife, he killed a dog, using its ribcage as a sled, and its hide to harness another dog, he disappeared into the darkness. 
Since publication, the story has been told and retold in documentaries, books, and across Internet websites and message board. Yes, message boards. Davis states that the original source of the tale was Olayak Narkitarvik, who was allegedly Oyaluk's grandfather in the 1950s who refused to go into the settlements and thus fashioned a knife from his own feces to facilitate his escape by skinning and disarticulating a dog. Davis has admitted that the story could be apocryphal, and that initially he thought the Inuit who told him the story was pulling his leg. Yet, as support for the credibility of the story, Davis cites the autobiographical account of Peter Freuken, the Danish Arctic explorer, describes how he dug himself a pit to sleep in and woke up trapped by snow. Every effort to get out of, uh, that he tried failed. Finally, he recalled seeing a dog's excrement frozen solid as a rock. So Freuken defecated in his hand, shaped into a chisel, and waited for it to freeze solid. He then used the implement to free himself from the snow. Oh, this is a Danish. I moved my bowels, and from the excrement I managed to fashion a chisel-like instrument, which I left to freeze. At last I decided to try my chisel, and it worked. While tools manufactured from human feces are not unprecedented in the human technological record. Oh, here's a bunch of links which I may click on later. We do not believe that Freuken's account can serve as support for the Inuit account for two reasons. First, while we do not have any reason to suspect that Freuken was prevaricating, to our knowledge there is no verifiable evidence beyond Freuken himself that this event occurred. Second, a chisel is a very different tool than a knife. The mechanics of use are distinct, and the worked substrates in the Inuit and Freuken cases are different. The Inuit case features the cutting and slicing motions on tissue, muscle, and tendon. The Freuken case presents the pounding and chipping of snow. Given the current ambiguity surrounding Davis's account of an Inuit using his own frozen feces as a knife, we conducted an experiment to test whether such a knife can function. Rather than conduct an actualistic butchery experiment, we designed a more controlled test and involved the simple slicing of materials necessary to skin and disarticulate dog, hide, muscle, and tendons. We reasoned that if knives manufactured from human feces cannot cut hide muscle and tendons in a simple controlled setting, then the notion that such knives could be used to butcher an entire animal would also not be supported. However, if such knives could cut through these materials, then future tests could systematically increase the complexity of the experiments for additional support. Right? Okay. Part 2. Materials and Methods. <laughs> in order to procure the necessary raw materials for knife production. One of us, M-I-E, oh, let's see, which one is that, M-I-E? Oh, Metin I. Aaron, the first name on the um, list, went on a diet with high protein and fatty acids, which is consistent with an Arctic diet for eight days. Uh, oh, there's a table. Oh, my God. The Inuit do not only eat meat from maritime and terrestrial animals, and there were three instances during the eight-day diet that M.I.E. ate fruit, vegetables, and carbohydrates. Where are these tables that they're linking to? Uh, I don't know. Raw material collection did not begin until day four, <laughs> then proceeded regularly for the next five days. Fecal samples were formed into knives using ceramic molds, knife molds, or molded by hand. Hand-shaped knives... Uh, oh, yeah. Hand-shaped knives. All fecal samples were stored at negative 20 degrees Celsius until the experiments began. 
We procured pig hide, muscle and tendons, and these were also stored at minus 20 degrees Celsius until two days before the experiments began, at which point we allowed them to begin thawing at 4 Celsius. Minutes prior to the experiment, both the knife mold samples and the hand-shaped knives were removed from the laboratory freezer and further sharpened with a metal file. Hmm. The knives were then buried for several minutes in minus 50 degrees dry ice to ensure they were sufficiently frozen before any attempt at slicing. The study was approved by the Institutional Biosafety Committee at Kent State University. <laughs> Part 3. Results We began our cutting experiments with the hide, reasoning that if our knives could not cut hide, then subsequent attempts with muscle and tenons would be futile. Neither the knife mold samples nor the hand-shaped knives could cut through hide. Despite the hide being cold from refrigeration, instead of slicing through it, the knife edge simply melted upon contact, leaving streaks of fetal matter, fecal matter. <laughs> we repeated the experiment using the fecal samples of another team member, MRB. Oh, which one's that? Is that Michelle? MRB. Michelle R. Beber. Good. Uh, whose diet was traditionally more Western. Uh, see supplementary online materials. The hand-shaped knives were subject to the same procedures and temperatures as the first set of knives. However, these knives also did not cut through the hide. For curiosity's sake, we tried to cut the subcutaneous fat on the underside of the hide. With some difficulty, only the shallowest of slices could be produced, and the knife edge still quickly melted and deteriorated. Part 4. Discussion. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Countless ethnographic, archaeological, and experimental observations robustly support the narrative that indigenous and prehistoric people are technologically resourceful, innovative, and savvy. It is thus unsurprising that an ethnographic account consistent with this narrative, an Inuit person extemporaneously fashioning a knife out of his own human, out of his own frozen feces to survive the Arctic night, has been so widely and positively transmitted. Our experiments, however, tested the technological basis necessary to support that account, and our results suggest that knives manufactured from frozen human feces are not functional. Our results should be considered in light of our use of minus 50 degree Celsius temperatures, a metal file to sharpen the blades, and a cold hairless hide rather than a warm hair-covered hide, the latter representative of a fresh kill. In other words, we gave our knives the best possible chance to succeed, and they still could not function. While future experiments may introduce the prospect of different diets, it is unlikely that this would have a significant impact. Our butchery occurred in a room with a temperature of approximately 10 C, and thus future experiments might examine colder contexts. We suspect this will also fail to yield different results than those presented here, as the time between the removal of a blade from the dry ice and the slicing of meat was instantaneous. The use of saliva to sharpen a frozen fecal blade, as the original account describes, might also be examined. However, based on the work of McCall and Pelton, 2010, uh, do I click on this link? Okay, sure. Uh, we are also skeptical that saliva will increase fecal blade efficacy. Efficacy. They, McCall and Pelton, 2010, recently examined the possibility that rather than flaking and chipping stone into butchery tools, humans in cold regions flaked and chipped ice. While these researchers' experiments demonstrated that ice could be fractured into butchery tools somewhat analogous in form to those made from stone, the actual use of such ice tools was ineffective. Their ice knives quickly melted when in contact with heat sources such as their hands, despite the use of gloves. Analogous to our fecal knives, the sharp ice, also, the sharp ice edge also melted in contact with the various objects they tried to cut. Their results preclude 
the use of ice in environments near or above freezing, cutting objects above freezing, or the tool being used by a human. Societal narratives and policies are often... Co- oh, let's check this link out. No, it's the same. That link goes nowhere. Okay, that link goes nowhere. Societal narratives and policies are often constructed from anthropological and scientific claims. While the narrative that indigenous and prehistoric people are technologically resourceful and innovative is widely supportive, these narratives suffer when an untested claim is used to support it. If one untested claim is used to support a stance, even if that stance is otherwise supported, ethical or just then there is no logical reason why a second untested claim cannot then be invoked. The use of untested claims then becomes the norm and can be used to support stances that are beneficial to society as well as those that are harmful. Anthropologists must actively seek out unsupported claims, assumptions, rumors, and urban legends, and by testing them, ensure any narratives that follow are as sturdy as possible. Also, who doesn't love pooing and then making a knife out of it? Acknowledgements. We would like to thank Andy Howard. Oh, that sentence, by the way, I made up. Andy Howard, Chris Hunt, Clive Bonsall, Peter Rowley Conwy, and an anonymous reviewer for their comments on an earlier version of this manuscript. We would like to thank the positive and constructive feedback from countless Pui archaeologists who heard this paper presented at the 2019 Society for American Archaeological Conference in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Declaration of competing interest. Authors declare no competing interests. Thank you for listening. <laughs> I'll put a link to this article. So uh, I actually don't see any tables here, but there are a bunch of things I could click on. I'm not going to click on them. It's dinner time. So thanks so much for listening to the very first, the inaugurable, as I said before, episode of Torn's Guide to Everything. What do you want to hear next? Suggestions are open. Find me on Facebook. Comment below if this is you're listening to this on YouTube. What Wikipedia article can I read to you, my friends? Support me on Patreon, patreon.com slash Torn Atkinson. And I bid you, goodbye. <laughs>